Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well. We always want to hear from you and get your feedback. I'm joined by, as always, the lovely uh, Caitlin Cooper, my good friend and co-host. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Doing well. I'm both excited and nervous because we're <laughs> starting something new and we're yeah. finally leaving last season in the past, Mark. We finally moved on. Can I, I, I have to rip off a quick story before we get started. Uh, so the one time that I, you have no idea how many people have asked me to try and get you to do draft coverage, Caitlin. Um, my, my good friend, PD Webb, one time hit me up. He was like, can you please do it? And then you, you uh, I think you emailed me that you were doing something draft related and you put it out very vaguely on Twitter and it ended up being like a Disney like bubble draft thing and it was it was very good it was very funny too but i remember telling pd i was like she's doing something draft related and he texted me the day it came out he's like i hate you so much like this is not what i was this is not what i was led to believe so we finally have here that this is like two years running and we're here now that was rude of me i do remember that because that's <laughs> the way i put it out and a bunch of people were mad but that was sb nation requested content where all the bloggers had to draft a disney character that would help their team in the bubble and the way i put it out people were not happy with my my tease that day mark they were not uh i can i can assure you they were not um but yeah so we are starting off draft coverage today and I'm really excited to bring on a friend of ours, Adam Spinella from over at the Boxing One, also a really good high school coach as well. Adam, how are you doing today, man? I'm great. Uh, I'm a huge fan of both of, of your works here, Mark. I know we've done some podcasts and uh, I think some live stream stuff together yeah. before. Caitlin was actually the first guest on my podcast over at the Boxing One. So quite familiar with you both. I actually also for some listeners out there that might not know, I used to live in Indiana. So I uh, do have a little bit of Hoosier ties to me. And uh, I'm really excited to talk Pacers and drafts here today. Yeah. Caitlin, who are we talking about today? We are talking about Jade and Ivy, which is in fact why I wanted to ask Adam on today's podcast, because I'm wondering, I remember that you told me that you coached in Plymouth. So did you ever coach or have to scout Jade and Ivy while you were in Indiana? Yeah. So I was coaching at Culver Military Academy, which is about 15 minutes away from Plymouth, uh, was a high school team that when I was there was in 3A and then moved up to 4A a couple of years afterwards. But we played Mishawaka Marion, which was in our sectional. So before Jaden Ivy ended up moving on to La Lemire and, uh, and moving into the prep ranks, he was at Mishawaka Marion, which was one of our rival schools at Culver. So we had a lot of battles back and forth. The one year I coached against him, he was a freshman. So that was my last year coaching at Culver. And you could tell, uh, you know, sometimes when you see a younger player who's bound for greatness, you can tell right away he's going to be pretty good. But I think the, the physical maturation and growth of a guy like Ivy since then has really uh, has really taken off. And he's a, a much different player than he was what, five years ago, six years ago when I ended up coaching against him. And this is why you're the perfect person to have on. But just just for the listener, what we've come up with, because I am somewhat new to draft content, what Mark and I did is we both picked 
a game that we wanted to cover and watch of Jaden Ivy. So I picked the Michigan State game from the end of February. Mark wanted to do the Texas game from the NCAA tournament. We both watched both of those games. And then we have each picked one clip that we think is a reason to buy on this player, a stock up. And then we each picked a reason to somewhat be hesitant or sell stock, which is a stock down. So I think we want to start with the positive ones first. So I'm going to turn it over to Mark and let him share what he picked as his stock up from those two games. Yeah, my stock up is one of my favorite plays. Like I, uh, It's funny because you know, as somebody who's done draft coverage throughout the year, this is like my first really full year doing draft coverage. Um, watching, not to give like a giant intro, but like watching where Jaden was at, at at FIBA this summer uh, to who he became at Purdue this year, and even just like the growth that he showed throughout the season was pretty wild. And I think the Texas game really encapsulated a lot of that for me. Um, there were a lot of complaints throughout the year from 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 draft fans like, oh, why aren't they running more of the offense through Jaden? Like, why is everything through the post? Um, and I think in some ways you really saw so much like I don't want to say that his limitations were hidden, but I think you saw what makes him a really interesting prospect heightened in some ways, like being able to use his burst and his quickness off the ball. And in the Texas game and especially just in the, the tournament overall, I think you really got to see the keys handed over to him more. Um, he got to run more pick and roll things kind of uh you know, changed up in the half court for Purdue. Um, my play is not even out of pick and roll. It's just, I, I watched this play over and over again. I remember watching in the moment and thinking there is nobody on the Pacers who I even like contemplate being able to do that. And that is Jaden catching the ball off of an inbounds. Uh, this is early in the second half. Um, I'll say I'm rewinding the clip because I, I didn't have it written down at first. Um, he, Catches the ball like up top of the key, goes to his right, step back to his left. Defender stays right on him because Texas has just phenomenal perimeter defenders. And then spins back to his right and goes into this scoop layup that starts from, you know, about four feet inside the free throw line. Just a gorgeous finish. And it's just the kind of thing where like, I don't want to just say it's a superstar finish, but it's the kind of thing where like as good of a finisher as Tyrese Halliburton is, he is not to that level where I, I mean, he's super comfortable being a guy who can, you know, just uh, get to his bag like that. And I think adding somebody like that um, to me, that's a, that's a definite uh, an, an encapsulation of what would uh, really make him an intriguing selection for the Pacers. I thought for sure that it, when we went to the Texas game, you were going to pick the big step back three that he made. I thought it, about it, but I, was I like, thought, I thought that's where you were going, but <laughs> yeah. And I looked up at, college basketball analytics he shot 68 percent within four feet of the rim and he's yeah. what six foot four so um that spin moves pretty electric like when he didn't pull it out a lot but when you see it like how quick and how bad how quickly he get back he gets back to his rights pretty impressive but i'll let adam go from there and what he's seen because we're bringing him on as the expert to reflect on our picks well i, I think mark is is hitting the nail on the head when he talks about the growth that Jaden ivy has shown just over the last nine months or so uh, really embraced being that late clock creator a little bit for Purdue in ways where when they needed a bucket, they needed something, he was going to be able to go get it. You know, Caitlin, you mentioned that step back jumper that was huge against Texas. I really like the combination of getting a lot better off the bounce this year at Purdue with some of those fancy dribble moves where he can read his defender, right? So he goes to his step back right to left in that clip that Mark is talking about, thinking that he might be able to get to a pull-up shot. The defender stays with him, but he keeps his dribble, spins back to his right, and his ground coverage to go from that one spin move and then kind of turn and finish and scoop it at the rim 
you know, he's six foot four, but he's got really long arms, long strides with him. And he's just so explosive. He, he's by far the most explosive guy in this draft class. I, I compared him a little bit more to like a John Morant or a Derek Rose with just how he can go from zero to 100 miles an hour and attacking the rim and, and just separating from guys. A uh, really, really rare combination of things. He was solid at those as a freshman, but I think he got a lot better as an athlete. And more than anything, the credibility of his jump shot, which improved night and day from freshman year to sophomore year, is what forced defenders to come out and guard him tighter on the perimeter, guard him on those step backs and make sure they're close enough to him. So now those counter moves are what we see in NBA isolation situations. And one of the reasons why he does have such a high offensive ceiling. Yeah. And that kind of like, uh, well, I guess we can turn it over to your stock up um, because I, it, it kind of feeds into my stock down too. So how do you, how do you want to swing this one? Because like, this is, it's not even like stock down, but just like having it a, a talking point. So how do you want to go with this? Well, you go to your talking point. Okay. You I just want to make sure. Point. Um, it's for both games, honestly, but uh, I mean, the fact that he's a hop step shooter, like that, that doesn't bother me a ton, but like um, just his, he does. It's, it's interesting. Cause like he has shot versatility that he showed this year. Like he's capable of doing stuff off movement. Uh, obviously, you know, some stuff as a self creator as well, but it is a low release point. He doesn't get super high off the ground. But I also think it's interesting because, like, with how explosive he is downhill, I'm not sure it matters as much. I was wondering if you're kind of in the same same vein with that. 100%. Yeah, I am. Uh, actually, Tyrese Halliburton, interestingly enough, when he was getting drafted two years ago, I was not sold on his ability to attack closeouts. thought he was a really good shooter, mm-hmm. but his form was a little bit slow. His, his lower body mechanics weren't great, and his feet were really narrow to the point where – if he's a credible shooter, somebody's going to close out, close out tightly to him, and he has to be able to quickly go past him in order to gain separation and get to the rim. Ivy doesn't have that problem. Yes, he's a set shooter, but man, is he explosive. And, and there's just there are too many clips and too much information out there to say this is a guy who's going to struggle in those areas because he's just so explosive from a standstill straight up to going 100 miles an hour at the rim. I, I haven't seen anybody like this in this class. Like if, if we do talk, I know you didn't pick the Texas step back three, but if we do talk about that just a little bit, like they are shading him left, like Texas, you know, was taking middle away, shading him left. He didn't get a screen and they were definitely sagging off and playing that drive. And, you know, he shakes his guy, puts him on skates, creates that space and makes the step back. When you're looking at some of his analytics, he took a lot of deep threes. He made 40 threes between 25 and 30 feet. Now, that's about 24% of his overall shot diet. So like, if you look at it, most of his shots were either at the rim or deep threes. So his three point percentage jumped up by what 10 or 11 percentage points this season over his freshman year. But a question I would have for you, his free throw percentage didn't really change. So are you a person who judges or projects where a prospect's three point percentage is going to be in the NBA based on the free throw attempts at all? Yeah, I am not. Uh, I don't put a ton of stock in the translated mm-hmm. just because they're different types of shots with the amount of time yeah. that you have to get set with, you know, some guys have a high release jump shot from three. And, and that has nothing to do with your free throw form because you never leave your feet. But on the subject of free throws, Caitlin, I'm incredibly optimistic about Ivy just as a, an isolation or a go to scorer because he attacked the basket so much more in the latter part of the year. And his final 15 games, he averaged over seven free throw attempts a game, and he was shooting 77% over 
over that time period. So he got better in those areas as the season went on, not just in terms of percentage and making them there, but in volume. I think that if he's at 76 or above from the free throw line, he's in good shape. But the fact that he's able to get there and attack in a lot of those ways, and like Mark said, he doesn't need a ball screen. He can just go past guys. Like that's a, that's a really, really important point for me, that when you're running late clock offense, you just need somebody to have the ball and be able to attack. The fact that he can get to the rim, get to the free throw line, and if teams are sagging off him and taking that away because of his speed, he's now developed that deep range jumper to complement everything. Like all of the pieces are starting to fit together to become a really polished offensive player. And yeah, you know, you're an explosive athlete. Anytime a six foot four guard can get 18 free throw attempts in a game, that's, you know, pretty wild. I think that was, yeah, in the Rutgers game. But I guess we'll head into my stock up, which mine comes from the Michigan game, mm-hmm. which I'm going to have to minimize this for a second so I can pull this up. And it's actually on the defensive end because Max Christie is who he's guarding along the baseline. And he actually kind of fakes a little bit of a flex action to the opposite corner. And then he's going to go into a pin down into a handoff at the top of the key. And Jaden has reason to pause there for a second, waiting for that kind of fake flex goes to the top. And actually there's separation and he runs past the screen and it's not a side contest. It's not a rear view contest. He's all the way back in front and blocks that shot. So um, I think that there are some concerns about his off-ball defense, but I think this right here speaks to his actual natural tools and the fact that if he can have that type of recovery speed, that there is reason to think that that you know can translate. What do you think about that, Adam? I'm glad you mentioned the phrase natural tools because anytime you're drafting a guy who's essentially a teenager, uh, you're really looking for a lot of indicators for what do they have that we can't teach because as an NBA team and having, you know, the 30 best coaching staffs and assets and development things at your disposal, you got to feel really comfortable that you can add the polish. You can add all those other things to his game. I worry a little bit less about help defense than a lot of other coaches who are kind of around the draft space might just because I think it's something you can teach. Uh, Ivy's natural tools are ridiculous and that's going to allow him to be a really good on ball defender. He's a tremendous shot blocker for somebody who plays his position, both in terms of his his on-ball contests and how he can fly around from the weak side when he's engaged, when he recognizes those opportunities. He can really get a a hand on somebody at the rim and block shots. Uh, I I think, again, the, the best comparison, I'm not a huge comp guy, but I think it helps a lot of people start to visualize what type of player we're talking about, would be a little bit of that John Morant ish, like, he can really be bouncy in tight spaces. If he can get over the top of ball screens and chase guys around them, he's going to be able to recover or with that six, seven, six, eight wingspan contest shots from behind and, and really block them. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of Ivy's point of attack defense over the long term. And I think again, for his position type being more of a backcourt guy, that's a, a huge trait that you're looking for. It's less about the help defense and the rotation and coverages much more about, Does he have a natural ability to get through screens, to contest from behind, and just be athletically gifted enough one-on-one to go lock somebody down if we absolutely need him to? And in some respects, you know, that helps the Pacers because I think that, in my opinion, you want Tyrese Halliburton playing more off ball. That's where more of his strengths are. With his slender frame, he has some problems with the point of attack. You want to be using his, you know, off ball instincts, his attentiveness, 
his ability to dig down and stunt, make an impact on the ball away from the ball more. So you can kind of cross match the two of them if this is something that you can do. But Mark, I want to get you in too. Where do you stand on? I mean, I think that there are diverse opinions on this. What do you see as more valuable in the NBA today on ball defense or off ball defense? Like on ball defense gets undervalued sometimes, uh, especially in the draft sphere. Like, um, I think it's just like not to hedge because you know me, I hedge on everything, but like, I think it's a mixture of both. Like, you can't just have one or the other, of course. Like, that's that sounds like minute and like, of course, like, no doubt, but um, especially for a team like the Pacers, like, if they just had one player who could have consistently gotten stops on the perimeter this year that wasn't named Tory Craig earlier in the year, like. That team is vastly different defensively. Not that the, not that I think that they're a top 10 defense or anything, but I mean, we just saw repeatedly throughout the year how much they were leaking and how much they had to adjust their coverages because they couldn't get stops on the perimeter. Um, so I think it's incredibly important. Um, and one thing that I like, I really appreciate that you mentioned too when talking about just tools overall and teaching technique. Like I think I look at Jaden too, like I think there are guys who uh, like breaking down feel between offense and defense, I think is really important. People are starting to get get towards that. I don't think he has bad defensive feel. I think he just kind of can like, he can ball watch sometimes for sure. But like, like you mentioned, like his recovery tools and some of the plays that he sniffs out to playing as the low man, like he's, he honestly was like pretty good at tagging in the game against Texas. Um, Showed some of that in Michigan state too. Like I'm pretty confident in becoming at least, you know, a neutral or better off ball player. So I, uh, I'm, I'm really excited to see what he could be as a defender. And and one thing on, on that front, Mark, I think too many times we punish guys who carry a heavy offensive burden Mm -hmm. in college for not being pristine on the defensive end with their effort and their energy. It's really hard to do when you're that age and you're the focus of defensive game plans. You know, the the college game is is just very different in, in the fact that it might be a little bit more up and down, depending on the opponent. Purdue tries to slow things down. So maybe a little bit less of an excuse for for Ivy than some other guys. But I mean, we killed Jason Tatum for this. We killed Anthony Edwards for this a couple of years ago. Just really, really high volume offensive players who had the raw tools, but didn't use them all the time. The question was, are they a good enough defender? Are they going to want to defend? Look at them now in the NBA playoffs. Like Tatum is out there locking down Kevin Durant for some possessions. And Anthony Edwards is one of the better defenders in the Western Conference on the wings. So the fact that those two guys have gotten there early along in their careers makes me kind of agree with you, Mark. Like, it's all about the raw tools. It's not about how he plays with the engagement stuff. It'll figure itself out when the the game is really on the line in the NBA playoffs. Yeah, for me, I think some of the stuff that I noticed was that, you know, if they're running floppy action, he can get caught off guard. And then instead of making that up and swallowing that space in a trail, you're going to see him try to, you know, shoot the gap and cut a corner. And then that's going to compound a previous error, or he might be a little bit slow to commit and know where the rotation is. So he has two other teammates that have already made the rotation and his might be, you know, a hesitant, a hesitant stunt. And then he's back to his own man when that rotation should have happened or, you know, his guy gives up the ball and he relaxes and that makes it easy for the big to then, you know, pitch it right back to his guy and he's getting a three. So some of that type of stuff is what I noticed away from the ball. And I guess I agree with you. I think that that's probably easy to be taught. I mean, you're not going to teach, you're not going to bring in, you know, let's think, you know, in Malcolm Brogdon, you're not going to bring in Malcolm Brogdon and his point of attack defense and be like, Hey, we're going to teach you to do what Jade and Ivy just did in this recovery clip. So I see where you're coming from. I think just from like a grander theoretical standpoint and what we're seeing in some of the playoffs, I think 
more and more and feel either one of you can feel free to disagree with me, but that we're seeing defense be more collective than ever before. Like if you watch the way the Miami heat just defended Trey young, that wasn't just about PJ Tucker or the fact that, you know, he's picking him up 94 feet or that Jimmy Butler's a good wing defender or that Bam Adebayo can switch out. It's PJ Tucker's picking him up 94 feet. Then they switch him to Jimmy. Then they switch him to Bam. Several people are stunning at the ball. They get him to give it up to, you know, whoever, Tyler Hero, and then somebody's early on the help to the other side, and then Jimmy's stunning the rotation and getting a deflection. Like, I think it's becoming a lot harder to assess credit or blame somewhat to defenses because it's more um, of a collective. But I do get what you're saying in terms of that being easier to teach and to teach culturally. I mean, that's just kind of part of what the Heat are. But um, Yeah, and and Mark, I'll jump in there real quickly. Like, I think – Part of the reason Miami and Boston and, in you know, in some regards, Golden State have been really good defensively is because they don't have many bad athletes or bad defenders that they put on the floor. Right. The collective is really strong. And when you know, we always say in the coaching profession, your defense is only as strong as your weakest link. And for those teams, roster construction wise to just get a bunch of good athletes and guys who are at least average or above average on the defensive end, you can do a lot of different things scheme wise, and you can take credit for it by sharing those responsibilities. If you're going to have a team and a roster construction where you've got a really good offensive player who just doesn't have that natural athletic talent to be able to guard, you have to hide them in different ways. And therefore the rest of the team and the roster construction around them has to be about individual defenders who can just stay on their assignment and thrive there for what it's worth. I think Ivy's going to be good enough to do either just because of his athleticism and because of his size, right? He can, he can guard up. We talked about cross-matching earlier with Halliburton. I think that's a very real possibility for Ivy in the NBA to really guard one through three and in the right scheme or in different schemes, he can pop in different ways, but at the very least, I just, I have a hard time ever envisioning me being a negative on the defensive end. Yeah, the weakest link thing certainly shows up in the playoffs as well. Because I mean, more and more teams are, you know, going to sniff out and scheme against poor individual help defenders. But it's and sorry. we also we also see the you know the turnstile nature of what problems caused for Utah during that season or that series against Dallas. But anyways, Mark, yeah. if you want to hop in too, yeah, for sure. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, Caitlin, because uh, I don't I don't remember if we talked about this that much, but. Um, how much when you watch Jaden Ivey, do you see shades of Victor Oladipo? Because that's been a my lot. thing this entire year. Every time I watch him, like I actually think Ivy might be a better athlete, which is kind of insane to say, especially with where Victor was coming out of Indiana. Um, but like, yeah, I think about it all the time. I'm like, especially like, you know, watching him make a rotation as the low man. I'm like, oh, Victor. And like watching him just be super slippery coming off of a ball screen downhill. Like, I'm like, oh, Victor, like. Obviously, different players. I think Victor had more of an established in-between game, but that's also like he was older coming out, so it makes sense. But, um, yeah, I see that a lot in, in, in looking at the two. Yeah, I mean, I shared a clip of that. This podcast got pushed back a couple times. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I shared a clip of that about two weeks ago because Purdue ran almost an identical play to the the Pacers ran under Nate McMillan that mm-hmm. – um, and Sabonis's and Victor's first season where it was basically like an elbow Chicago, but they used decoy action on the weak side. And it was pretty deliberate when Victor was here and looked deliberate by Purdue as well, that Victor would actually stand in the corner with his hands on his knees, bent over like the universal sign of decoy. And you're looking to the strong side where it looks like, you know, there's a screen that's going to free the guard to come to the ball in that direction. And instead they're running Chicago for, 
Oladipo or in Purdue's case, Ivy to just absolutely explode from that corner. So if you're able to go from being bent over into completely just dusting your guy going around that screening action and able to get downhill. Um, yeah, a lot of that does remind me of Victor and, and the closing speed defensively as well. And his ability to read passing lanes is, is somewhat similar too. But one thing that doesn't remind me to Victor, we might get to in my stock down, but, um, and another thing, like, I, I don't really, I'm with Adam. I don't really like player comparisons in general, though. I do get that one. I mean, I made it on Twitter, but I mean, his ability to change angles can somewhat be like a little bit Dwayne Wade, Derek Rose, like, and his ability to go to that double cross and be able to change directions going downhill. Like it's not just, he's just not just attacking in straight lines. So, um, Adam may not remember plays that the Pacers ran from the 17-18 season, but he can definitely chime in if he does. Yeah, I, I, um, I think the greatest thing about Ivy in the, the scouting context at Purdue is that he did play off ball a little bit. You know, Mark talked about a lot of complaints, and I am chief among them in a lot of the draft space about saying, man, I wish we saw a little bit more spread pick and roll for Ivy but there were benefits that come from him playing off ball, particularly when the ball is thrown in the post because he's used more as a cutter. You have to see his IQ to read those situations where, you know, if he's going into a split action with Sasha Stefanovic, who's a really good shooter for Purdue and two defenders start to jump out at him. Is he going to be able to read that quickly enough to go back door? And Ivy is so explosive of an athlete that he's a major threat as soon as he gets a little bit of paint touch to him because as soon as his feet are in the paint it doesn't even need a dribble he's going to go up and be able to finish that thing at the rim and that's so valuable for a team that has different types of creators and guys that they want to play through now i'm not saying that the the pacers necessarily have that right now somebody to throw the ball into the post and try to play through but you can run a lot of different playbook stuff whether it's elbow Chicago actions, anything out of delay where you're swinging around and flaring or slipping out of the corners. There's just so much that you can do with somebody explosive like him, who not only is a threat to, to slip those plays and go to the rim, but pop it and either shoot a little bit off the catch or still attack those closeouts and make the right play for your team. So I think that Ivy is going to be really good, not just in the, we want him to bring the ball up and initiate the pick and roll type of ways, but you can open up your playbook for somebody like him a little bit. And, and I think Mark alluded to the movement shooting a little bit earlier, like Purdue would use him in floppy sometimes and he'd be able to come off those screens and drill shots. There's a lot more offensive versatility for him as an athlete than, than a lot of people really think is out there. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so high on Ivy. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because I lightly alluded to that yesterday, because I feel like that's where a lot of the criticisms go or like, ways that you can see his upside is I think people bring up, you know, watch this drive now and imagine it next year in a spread NBA offense when there aren't, you know, two big standing in the paint or three players inside the arc. And, and I get that to an extent, but every game that I watch, I can see him running plays that you see at the NBA level right now. I mean, I tweeted one yesterday. I mean, the, the Suns run this for Devin Booker. Like you'll see Devin Booker on the left block and it becomes a DHO into Chicago action where he's basically making a quick turn out to the three-point line. In Jaden's case, a lot of times then you're having to chase him through practically a hairpin turn, and it's to get to his strong hand. And there were occasions, especially in the elimination game there against St. Peter's, where they kind of sat on his right coming off, and then that led to him having a little bit of struggles at what level he wanted to make that pass. 
but like that one, or you can see him coming off of Iverson and then it's a comeback. And that's something that the Cavs run for Darius Garland almost every game or the one I mentioned about Victor. So like what your point is making is that these are actions that off ball scoring guards run at the NBA level that we're seeing um, running the triple stagger that they use with a lot of misdirection for Jaden Ivey. That's another thing that NBA teams run. So they did increase the pick and roll frequency. I looked that up around the time when they played, I want to say Illinois and Michigan. From that point forward, I think his frequency went up by about 4%. So he was doing more in spread pick and roll, but I don't think it was necessarily a negative that he was running, um, which Matt Painter is just super creative with a lot of the stuff that he comes up with anyways. But um, their offense was like my favorite thing to watch this year. It's like, that's, that's where I came from. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but like Mm -hmm. as much as like, I I totally understood, like I wanted to see Ivy run more pick and roll too, but I was also like, I think they have like a 129 offensive rating for most of the year, which was of course tops in 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 the NCAA. It was God is so fun to watch. But from there, if we want to shift into the stock downs, Mark, I'll let you go first. Yeah, I'm hopeful uh, we didn't pick the same thing. I don't have um, like it's not just like one set play. I cheated once again, but it's just watching his passing in the Michigan State game. Um, not that it's bad per se, but I think this is where it gets into, uh, talking about, you know, his fit on the team a little bit, like most of his reads, like there's a, he initially forces a lob to, to Zach Eady earlier in the game. And then I think two or three possessions later, he gets trapped and Eady's like open, you know, two, probably two steps off of, uh, off the slip. Um, and he still makes the right pass, but it's probably two or three beats late. And I think that's kind of been typical with Jaden this year. Not that it's bad. Like I think his passing, honestly, to me improved throughout the year too, because like he improved as a finisher dramatically as well. Like he went from some of the erratic stuff that he was, he was putting up at the rim earlier in the year, he started to tone down and be like, okay, I'm going to kick to the corner now, or I'll make this interior read instead. And I found that impressive, but also like, I do think, you know, when you're looking at somebody who you want to have, as a higher usage guard, um, it is important to note like where his passing is at right now. And I do think like, I, I mean, that's stuff, especially as he runs more pick and roll that can be repped out. And I'm interested to see how it can develop that, but it is kind of a, it definitely stands out. Yeah. I think Ivy plays at two different speeds when he mm-hmm. comes off the pick and roll at times, right? There's that one blazing quick speed of I'm so much more athletic than that dude. I've got a little bit of space. I'm just going to get to the rim. And then there's that other speed, which is maybe a tad slow right now of, okay, I need to get into a hostage dribble and bump my man and try to play angles. And I think when he does that and slows down, like he's an okay passer. He's not great by any means, but he's okay. Where he gets caught is if he goes all out at the rim and then all of a sudden the space that he anticipated being there is not, and he has to adjust and become a passer. He's not very good at that. He had a lot of turnovers this year, jumping off of one foot. which are indi, you know, they indicate to me that he's leaving his feet thinking one thing is there and he has to adjust and doesn't have necessarily the time to in midair. So um, I I think he's going to be a solid pick and roll playmaker in the NBA. And and Caitlin, you brought up the, the Illinois and Michigan games as when they started to turn him loose a little bit more against the pick and roll. Those were massive from a scouting standpoint because Illinois with Kofi Coburn is more of a dropped back rim protecting big. And Hunter Dickinson at Michigan, who is not very mobile on the perimeter and needed to be placed back towards the basket, are the two most uh, appropriate comparisons for NBA context of what you'll see in the Big Ten for how they guard the pick and roll. And to see Ivy be able to 
go against drop coverage, get into the mid range and make play after play after play, especially in the stretch of, I believe it was the Illinois game where he had like five or six possessions in a row where he was just, he was fantastic. That's incredibly important to me. Now, a lot of it is score first, like Mark said. Um, but I think the passing reads are fine. I, I wanted to, I shouldn't say I wanted to, I came into the process of finishing my scouting report on Ivy thinking that passing was going to be an improvement area that I was going to have to sit down and pull all these clips together of some poor reads or where he's slow at making some of these decisions. I found a couple, but not enough to really become one of the top three areas that he had to improve on this year. I was actually pleasantly surprised by his playmaking and believe it or not, that's the reason why he ended up leaping into the top three on my overall big board right now is because I felt pretty comfortable with where he was at as a playmaker and think the flashes that he showed in those, those games against drop coverage are really going to translate well to the NBA. Yeah, I think more so probably what I would have noticed just riffing off Mark saying the playmaking is like in that elimination game, what I mentioned there against St. Peter's when they're running that gut DHO action and they switch it and kind of play his right it's a kind of about what level he's getting to, to make the pass because in that particular instance, like he read the defender correctly, like what you're saying, he read the defense, but then he made the wrong level of pass. It's a chess pass and it's a turnover. Whereas, you know, the big was open under the rim. He just needed to get a little bit deeper before he made the read. Or, I mean, I like that you mentioned the two speeds because I do feel like he's gotten better with the hostage dribble and snaking from left to right. Um, what he does after that can be somewhat interesting, but like just to get your feedback, cause you mentioned the drop coverage, but in, in some of this Michigan state game, they're icing him, especially on the left side of the floor. And I feel like his half speed is still fast. So sometimes he's faster than what the roller is. And a lot of times when you're running ice coverage, like you need to be in tandem with the roller. They, you have to move at the same speed. Otherwise, you know, you, you don't have the benefit of the screen. And then the lefty pocket pass, like when he's not making passes with his left that require like a lot of wrist action, he doesn't necessarily, he either misses it and doesn't see it, or he doesn't like, that's just a pass that he didn't make. And then it ends up, you know, the defender that no longer has to defend two on one in ice coverage. Like if you aren't at the same speed as the roller, all they have to do is defend the ball handler. And then he ends up, you know, having to pivot into a very tough shot. So I don't know if that was similar to lead. I mean, that is going to feed into what my stock down is, but um, that was just something that I noticed. And Mark, you can chime in there too. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. Like, and I think, I, I don't know, it, it almost feels wrong putting it as stock down for me because like right. it is like, it's definitely something to note, but also it's like, again, like just gauging comparison throughout the year. Like it's just so much better. Cause then, I mean, as a counter clip too, there's uh, in this same game, he isolates Max Christie with and, and drives with his left hand, which is not his dominant hand, um, and draws three and then makes this fantastic uh, interior dump off to Trevion Williams. And I'm like, that's not something that he's doing earlier in the year. Um, and I think to me, it's more like he does so many things that are primary level. And it's just, you know, how much can the passing grow with it? And I think I, I, I definitely lean with where you're at Adam, on, on how, you know, the, the flashes and the improvement, especially like him figuring out like change of pace was just not a thing for him last year. Um, and so to see him, especially like that Illinois game was one of the best prospect games this entire season from anyone um, and seeing him work in like, just like, I, I don't, I can't remember how many times he even snaked the ball screen before 
the Illinois game and then just showing that. So it, it definitely it's it's a uh, stock interesting, I guess, is how I'll put it. But um, yeah, I'm 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 really excited about him. So, Caitlin, I'll, I'll transition that to you. What is your stock? OK, so, yeah, some all this is kind of going to blend together, but I have picked another play from the Michigan State game. And I like that you mentioned the left hand. So, yeah, he's attacking without a screen going to his right. And I, part of the reason I wanted to watch this game is because A.J. Hoggard is a better defender. So they're out there and he sits on his right, turns him to go to his left. And then when he goes, he's about eight feet in. The mid-range shot is there. And this is why I said it's a little bit different than Victor. Like when Victor would come off a high pick and roll, he was like a springboard diver. Like when he'd get into that space, the pull-up was very clean for him in that 17-18 season where there was a lot of fluidity that he was going to rise up from about eight to 10 feet and go into that shot. So he, he doesn't fully get the pickup with his left ends up getting blocked and loses the ball. And then Michigan state scores and transition the other way. So he doesn't really have a mid range game, which I mean, depending upon your perspective can be a good or a bad thing. I mean, what I said earlier, most of his shots are either at the rim or deep threes and his pull-up shooting is iffy. And part of the reason I think that his pull-up shooting is iffy just based on the little sample size that I've seen is because of his weak hand and his ability to gather and pick up in some of those situations. Um, when I looked up on Instat, he shot 41% this season on all of his field goal attempts after driving to his left, which doesn't necessarily mean that he shot with his left. Cause what I noticed is a lot of times when he gets into the paint, he tries to right hand those shots or he hunts the scoop shot, even when the defense is giving him a lane to get to his left. Or if, if there's an opportunity to use a quick rip through move, I think some of it has to do with his handle because he has the in and out dribble. He has the double cross, but it isn't, it isn't always there a hundred percent of the time. So my stock down is, is handle and dexterity to an extent, because then when you look at the ones that he actually left-handed, he only took 13 shots with his left this entire season. So he right-hands a lot of those and looks for areas to get back to his right. Like sometimes when he's in that mid-range spot, he'll try to go behind his back and get it to his right, and he'll lose the handle in those situations. Or in this Michigan State game, I noticed a spot where um, – Part of the benefit of having bigs in the offense is that they're there to then seal and space and Edie sealed and provided him a lane to go to his left. And he probed all the way out of it instead of finishing with his left and then had to make a pass out of it. So I don't know how much of that is something that Adam noticed through his scouting this year. A little bit of it. Yeah. I think, um, again, sometimes you just have the rare physical tools to offset a lot of that so that it won't necessarily matter. And at the NBA level, I would be more concerned about trying to add an adequate runner or pull up in like the eight to 15 foot range than I would be about trying to barrel your way all the way to the basket and finish with your left hand. Now the gather yeah. stuff is interesting, but I think more pressing for somebody like him, especially against drop coverage is going to be really nailing down that floater in that mid range. So in the, the short mid range area that synergy sports defines as under 17 feet from the basket, he was seven of 34 on his jump shot attempts there, which a lot of those were kind of come to a stop off two feet and then flick it up with one hand. It's kind of this weird in between jump shot slash floater slash runner type of, of shot. And, and he's got to really get good at that. Uh, I, I think that's the the biggest difference between 
being a three level scorer out of the pick and roll or in isolations and being where he is right now. Uh, Caitlin, you mentioned the, the analytic kind of positives and negatives of some of that. I'm actually going to call back from our first podcast on the box and one where we were talking about shot selection and trends for this upcoming season. We had mentioned that the Phoenix Suns made a killing last year in beating teams in the mid range and around those elbows that Chris Paul and Devin Booker essentially carried a team to a championship because over the course of an entire season, every team chased people off the three point line, sat back in, in front of the rim and dared Phoenix to beat them from the elbows. I think great players who carry an offense have to be able to punish teams who make them take those shots. And right now that's the, the big concern for me with Ivy is he hasn't developed the ability yet to punish those teams. Part of it's that he's playing too fast. Part of it's that his, he gets caught in between this jump shot or this runner. Maybe part of it's like Caitlin is saying, where he doesn't have a clean enough gather when he's going to his left hand and, and trying to get that into his shot pocket. There are areas that he definitely needs to clean up there, but there is also something to say for a guy who's just so damn explosive that he's going to be able to get to the rim and dunk on some of these drop coverage bigs anyway. Yeah. And that's the thing, because I think that you can see a lot of spots, at least at the college level where, I mean, and also you can think of like De'Aaron Fox where he's going to be quick enough in a lot of situations where he's going to beat an under anyways, or, I mean, I've seen him blow past hedges in some of these games and he's still getting to the rim, but I get, and this is, you know, a more recent Pacers example, but, the Pacers play the Kings. Davian Mitchell's obviously very familiar with Tyrese Halliburton. They come out with a very exaggerated game plan where, you know, he's effectively face guarding him, denying him and forcing Tyrese to go to his left. And then it's, it's ice to switch essentially, which is a good strategy against Tyrese for a lot of reasons. But, you know, if that's something that you're going to see and you know that this person is, is weaker going to their weak hand and you're going to weak them out of middle pick and rolls, then what we're saying about snaking back to left to right and hitting that little elbow jumper then becomes a lot more valuable in a shot that you're going to want to make. And, and I do, like I said, what you said earlier, like I credit him because he did show some deceleration and reacceleration this year and getting into that spot. But then when he gets there, that's what you're saying. Like it is a little bit of a weird hybrid between a pull up and a runner when he gets over to the right elbow to get out of that and what it's going to be. And I do think that that will matter at the NBA level because I, I mean, I've seen it with Tyrese, which I mean, they did some schematic things that really helped him in that game. And he still finished with 15 or more assists, but different players. But point being is I, I do think that that space will matter. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm a, like, I think that's kind of what the intrigue is for him. Sure. Like, uh, like what level can he get to in the, in, in, in the intermediate because there just isn't really an awesome sample size right now. And it wasn't something that he, he tested a ton. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's part of what makes him so intriguing. Um, I guess, I mean, that can flow into talking about his potential fit on the team. Caitlin, where do you want to start with that? Yeah. I mean, I think we can get Adam's feedback on one of them because um, just how do you see him in general? Like in the NBA, I mean, I like the tweet that you had a couple of weeks ago, Adam, when you said, I think you said something along the lines of how much development happens after a player is drafted and how much it matters to know, you know, what their aptitude for learning is. And that's why, like, when we do these pods, like, I don't really intend on saying, oh, the Pacers should or should not draft this player because I'm not them and I'm not going to be in on these workouts and having these sit downs with these players at the combine in various locations where you would probably glean a lot more of that type of information. But just from what you've seen on the actual court and you're more plugged in than we are, like, do you see him developing as a lead ball handler 
like regardless of team, or are you seeing him more as a secondary playmaking scoring guard? I see him as a lead guard. And I think that any NBA team that drafts him has to draft him with the intention of developing him into that. I think the security blanket of a guy like Ivy is that with his athleticism, being a little bit taller at six, four and and having a, a plus wingspan and the improvements that he's made shooting off ball, that's a security blanket and a, a floor for him to be able to get to, to say, okay, at least this guy can come in and, and show some solid traits off ball. But you draft him with the intention of turning him into that lead guard. And I think what he's shown enough of at Purdue is, is really encouraging that he's going to be able to get there earlier in his career. So, Mark, hearing that, first of all, do you agree with that? And what, what would your opinion be then if you were the Pacers? Yeah, I mean, part of why I'm really in on him for the Pacers, like, I mean, just uh, my own personal board, like if the Pacers somehow, like, let's say they got the third overall pick and Paolo dropped a three, he would be my number one for them just because they completely have have lacked anybody with that size who can do anything with shot making versatility in that way. But I, I mean, just the way that things are likely to shake out, it seems like Jaden would be most likely if he's, you know, there around three or four and I'm really in, intrigued by what he could do um, because of what he could do with Tyrese. And I think, I mean, this can flow into talking about the deer and Fox thing a little bit, but I think Jaden is just like, even though like, you know, you can compare them side by side. Like I think there are a lot of similarities between Jaden Ivy and Ty and, uh, and deer and Fox. But like, I also think there's just a lot of difference here too. Like I, I already believe in Jaden's shot a lot more than, than I did with, uh, with the Aaron Fox. Um, even though De'Aaron is like a much, much better um, pull-up shooter from two and has shown a lot more intermediate craft. Um, just like the fact that Jaden is coming in playing is mostly an off guard, I think is is important as well. Like, um, I mean, De'Aaron was running most of, of Kentucky's offense when he was there. And I think you can look at Jaden and be like, okay, he's already been capable of playing off of someone else while also running prim- primary action. But I think what is most intriguing to me is like, okay, you can have things initiate through both guards. And obviously finding a balance is difficult as we saw with the Pacers throughout this year. And I do think it would bring in questions too, like, okay, it, not that it would stunt Tyrese's growth, but like, again, that's like a very delicate balance thing for sure. Trying to figure out how you're getting the most out of both of them. But I think I would have a lot more confidence in Jaden and, and Tyrese just being able to work together because you have, completely different ways of bending defenses from two guys that I think could, could, could really mesh if you're able to, to, to bring it along together. And especially too, like, I don't, I don't love just force feeding guys reps. Like um, I like Jalen green a lot. I did not love how the Rockets brought him along initially this year. Um, I think part of it hurt not having a real um, like lead ball handler alongside him. But I think, you know, just being able to play Jaden mostly as an off ball guard and then, okay, let him run bench units, let him do things with the bench where he can do more primary things. But, um, you know, that's all like in season stuff that you can figure out and uh, prioritize developmentally. But I, I think like, to me, I would be very in on that fit. I think some of it goes back to what we said on the last player review pod with Tyrese and, and the usage and um, how it would impact that to a degree. And maybe, maybe the Pacers internally. I mean, like what I said, he only had three games after he was traded over from the Pacers where he led the team in shot attempts. He is, I mean, I think between the two, the clearly pure passer, which also applies to Malcolm Brogdon and Chris Duarte as well, depending upon who they play there. Um, But I guess my question would just be, how would it impact? I mean, we've seen 
with Malcolm playing out there, not that Jaden and Malcolm are similar players because they definitely aren't, but that it did lead to Tyrese not doing as much and not getting, I mean, Malcolm's pick and roll reps didn't really change. And I see the value of having multiple ball handlers in that extent, but I do think that Tyrese shakes out as more of the lead ball handler and playmaker and on this particular roster. And that if I were the Pacers, that's what I would be looking toward. But I mean, I have seen, I mean, like the plays that I brought up before that Darius Garland and Victor and and Devin Booker have run. Like, I think that stuff would work. I've seen him be used as a cutter, like what Adam referenced, where you can really use him to explode on weak side actions. Like if you're throwing the ball to him second side and he can rip through that out of a boomerang action, like look out. Like, I think that that would, that would work. Like, I think that there's ways for the two of them to do it, but I guess even a better question in this conversation would be, did Fox and Halliburton work? Are we sure that it didn't? I'd like to jump in here for a quick second and, yeah. and just give my thoughts on kind of the Sacramento situation with, yeah. with those guys and, and why Sacramento kind of pulled the plug, which by the way, I have no um, expertise in trying to predict what the Kings front office justifies logically. Nobody so, does. Yeah. No one does. This is not an attempt to try to do that, but I think the issues with Fox Halliburton together were with the roster construction on yeah. the defensive end. That's what I, I think, think too. They they were fine offensively, and uh, but when you had trot out Buddy Heald and Tyrese Halliburton and a small point guard and Fox, like he's he's decently long, but he's a little bit small for the position where I don't think he's switchable up and can be able to guard wings. Jaden Ivey is different in that regard because he's a strong-bodied six-four who plays bigger than he is. And I was wrong earlier. He's got about a 6'9 or 6'10 wingspan. That ability to maybe guard up in some lineups or at the very least cross-match with Halliburton gives the coaching staff of the Pacers a lot more freedom to move things around. And that's going to be the really important part. Now, can you play any backcourt of three kind of guards and have two of them be poor defenders? No, you probably can't, right? So at some point, like the buddy healed stuff is going to have to figure itself out a little bit. Um, I, I think anytime you trend it to go smaller, you open up some, some issues for you on the other end. But I, I think the difference between Sacramento and Indiana is going to be the size difference between a guy like Ivy and Fox more than anything. Yeah. And that's what I think. Like, I don't think that they fully know whether that pairing necessarily worked or didn't because they had so many surrounding roster fit issues because when you look at the numbers they played 853 minutes together this season and they gave up 118 points per 100 when the two of them were on the court and that's not just about them but that that's the equivalent of the league's worst defense right there and part of the problem is you know they don't have a rim protector they didn't when the two of them were playing there the pacers at least in theory, we'll have Miles Turner returning back, depending upon what goes on with extension talks with him. That alone is a difference. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have a lot of spacers around the two of them, aside from Buddy. And they also didn't have, you know, necessarily, uh, I mean, Rashawn Holmes can make floaters in that range that, you know, Tyrese ran stuff with, but they didn't have a reliable role threat to do stuff with necessarily either. So, um, I think that we can point, I mean, Mark and I have done it and shown that like when Halliburton was out there with Fox, his usage dropped to around 16% compared to when he was off and not that, that intuitively makes sense. But the same thing has happened with Malcolm Brogdon. And I think that when he hasn't been playing with the two of them, you have seen him be able to show exactly everything he can do when he's not out there with another guard. But I think that your point is salient in that 
I don't think that it was necessarily that Sacramento was like, this pairing doesn't work as much as there's no way to make this, you know, puzzle fit together with the other pieces that we have. And the only way to upgrade and fix what we need to do is to move one of these two guards, if that makes sense. But Mark, I know you've written about the Kings, so I'm sure you have an opinion on this as well. Yeah. Uh, it was actually really funny because the day that the trade happened, I had released a freelance article with SP nation's main site saying that they should not separate the Halliburton Fox pairing, but then they did it an hour later anyways. Um, no, I, I totally agree with what, what Adam said. I think a lot more of it was about how it was on the defensive end. And I think part of that was so frustrating because, uh, I mean, just being frank, like De'Aaron looked like he was a future all-defense candidate in his first two years. And then, I mean, part of it is, you know, um, taking on a larger offensive role, but also a lot of it's just the disengagement on the defensive end. Like he it is, it just has not really been trying, for being completely honest. Uh, but I, I think it also was different too because, like, Adam said as well, like Jaden is just a much different body type and, and bigger player than, than De'Aaron that makes me feel a lot better about how he could fit along Tyrese. Um, like, I think he's a much more viable point of attack defender. Um, whereas like De'Aaron is more like what made him interesting was kind of like, you know, when Victor in, in 2017, 18, when he was all defense, you know, his ability to cover ground and blow plays up is what made him most interesting when he was, you know, playing at his defensive apex. Um, and I think with Jaden, there's a lot more there with him as a point of attack guy that um, makes me feel a lot more that the fit is viable. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, there's times in closing lineups with the Kings where they're playing Davian Mitchell as well, yeah. and they're having to use him as the point of attack defender. Then you're having to play either De'Aaron Fox or Tyrese Halliburton all the way up to, you know, the wing position. But I guess one thing that we didn't necessarily discuss is it's not just Tyrese and, and Jaden. Like, would you be playing the two of them with Chris Duarte? And how would you feel about that? Good question. Um, I think it's going to just depend who's at the four. You know, like, I mean, I think we have inklings of who will be at the five, but like who at the four can link those lineups on, on either end because that's been a big question for this team for, you know, all around. Like, um, that that is a good question. I, I think, I guess I'd say you could probably get away with it just depending on what the offense looks like. And I mean, like Chris ideally is not playing up on threes, but I mean, it all depends on how you're cross matching stuff, but even then, like not to just like bring it down to, I think sometimes uh, we can over philosophize uh, based on the playoffs, but like, I mean, just watching last night in Utah against Dallas, there was like that four or five minute stretch where Dorian Finney Smith and Eric Paschal were playing center for both teams. And like, then you, I get like a, a, you can look and be like, okay, well, there's interesting lineup versatility stuff there. So I guess to me, it just depends on who else is um, capable of coming out and playing, which is another hedge for me. But yeah, that's a, that's where I'm going with that one. I mean, I know Adam covered Chris as well. Would you feel sound about playing Tyrese and and Jaden and Chris Duarte at the same time? I think if you have adequate rim protection, you can get away with it. I think in postseason series, it may catch up to you a little bit. Um, it, the, the tougher part for me is construction of a scheme, right? Like you want to have Miles Turner drop back and protecting the rim as much as you can. You also want to have Tyrese Halliburton on the weak side and being able to read plays and just use his fantastic IQ as much as possible. That puts a lot more pressure on, okay, now you can't hide a guy like Duarte in those minutes because you want Halliburton to be off ball. The more on ball defenders you have on the floor at the same time, 
the more you can get away with hiding somebody like Duarte if you need to. And if you're, you know, putting Halliburton on ball, that's probably not maximizing what he does on the defensive end enough either. So uh, I think, I think he's okay, but I, I think that Halliburton's best trait is being able to read plays from the weak side, knife in for steals and just be a really, really smart guy. So again, I, Mark's point about who they have as a connective piece at the four being able to defend at the point of attack and be solid there would go a long way in tightening up what you can do to play those three together. Uh, and knowing what scheme they're going to even use is, is a big question because I, I don't know how close you fall to the Pacers. We've talked about it a lot, but I mean, they started out last year having miles back in a drop role and found out our point of attack defense. This isn't, you know, holding up well enough to continue doing this. They were already using Sabonis to hedge because that just made a lot more sense based on what they had seen last year when they were funneling everything to Sabonis and that wasn't really viable. And to Sabonis' credit, his technique stepping out on those hedges did improve. And then as the season went on, eventually Miles was hedging as well. Then they were like, we don't have the defenders and, and, and the length to be doing the background rotations with this. So then when the trade happened with Sabonis and Miles wasn't playing, and, you know, it's also a mid-season trade. There's not a lot of time to implement something new. It all became switching, which makes sense with Isaiah Jackson because he's not ready to be a dropper anyways. And, you know, kind of trends toward being a switchable big. So they're doing a lot of switching. That doesn't really fit with Goga. So sometimes Goga's dropping, and then you're trying to run a lot of different schemes at the same time. I'm with you. I think in the long run, if you have Miles Turner, not that he can't switch in late clock situations, but I think that that kind of takes away from what his best trait is, which is his rim protection. So I think ideally you want to be able to get back to that. And it is about having the type of on-ball uh, perimeter point of attack defenders to do it. And to the, this point, going back to last season, they didn't necessarily have that. But if Jaden can develop into it, I mean, and Chris's, to Chris's credit, he was probably one of their top three top four defenders last season. I mean, they used him sometimes to pressure 94 feet. They had him doing some face guarding. He would take Chris Paul in situations. I think he is stronger with his off ball defense and stunts similar to what Tyrese does, but um, you would be giving up size with the three of them in a backcourt, depending upon what type of opponent you're going up against. Like if you're playing a very, you know, lengthy small ball clipper team, you might have some trouble, but um, I don't know. We'll see. I don't, I don't dislike it, but I don't know how the rest of the roster is going to shake out either. A lot, lots of reasons to be positive about Jaden Ivy, though. Do you have any closing thoughts or questions, Mark, that we didn't get to? No, I think that's about it for me. Do you? No, I think we, we've covered everything. Unless Adam has anything else that he wants to add or any, anything else Pacers-related that he's thought of. I, uh, I don't at all. I appreciate you both, uh, you know, allowing me to come on here and speak with you all on this stuff. I, I will say that in most of our mock drafts, we've had Jaden Ivey going to the Pacers if they stay in that five spot. Like, I, I think he'd be a fantastic fit there. Um, if you're a Pacers fan and you're worried about the shot, the mid range, all of those things, like it might be sounding like me beating a, a drum over and over and over again, but He's athletically so talented that a lot of those small limitations in the half court yeah. shouldn't preclude you from drafting a guy like him. Yeah. And obviously, you know, he is an Indiana guy. His mom played for the Indiana Fever. I think that would bring a lot of excitement to Gainbridge Fieldhouse if he was on the board. And that is who the Pacers ultimately selected. So, yeah, no, without a doubt. Um, well, this was a great way to kick off our draft coverage. I'm excited to do some more of this. Adam, thanks for coming on, man. Is there anything you want to plug before you get out of here? 
Uh, no, again, thank you both for, for having me. I always have a great time chatting with you both, especially with the, the deep level of IQ and knowledge you both attack the game with. You guys are the best to cover it. Uh, for anybody out there who's looking for any of our work on draft coverage, it's busy season right now. But for all of our work, you can find us at the box and one underscore on Twitter or our YouTube channel, which is just my name, Adam Spinella. Awesome. Well, I will have links for that in the post as well. Thanks again for coming on to everyone listening. Thank you for listening. And most importantly, have a good rest of your day.